0: and Dr. Rebecca Lundwall, both of Brigham Young University, and they have done quite a bit of research on autism. Ladies, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having us.
1: Thanks for the invitation.
0: And I recently read a quote from the Centers for Disease Control saying that while in the past, It was one in ten thousand students in 1975. One in ten thousand students were diagnosed with autism. Just recently, as recently as 2017, it was one in 68 children that were diagnosed with autism. Could you comment on that statistic? Well, part part
1: of the reason for the change is we're better at knowing what autism looks like and we're better at identifying it, um, especially in younger ages. Some of the reason for the lower statistics in the past is that individuals who had low language and low cognitive abilities and autism weren't identified with autism. They were often identified with intellectual disability instead. So as we get better at knowing what autism looks like and how to treat it, we're, we're identifying more Kids. Now, the question is, is it really increasing as fast as those statistics seem to suggest? And science has not been able to prove that there's a bona fide increase in autism, but all of the anecdotal evidence that I hear from pediatricians, for example, is they just seem to see more, the term they use is more of it walking through the door. So they seem to be noticing that there are more children with autism. We know for sure that it's not just because we've changed definitions. It might be because we're better at it, or it might be that there actually are more um, cases of autism occurring in the population than there were in the past. The exact reasons for that, we don't know. Some research suggests that it might be because parents are older when they have their children. It might be um, because we have um, a lot of babies surviving that would not have survived in the past. We don't know. We don't know why it's increasing. Um, that's one of the biggest questions in autism research right now.
2: I just want to say something on this, too, because I think the news that the rate of diagnosis is increasing is not necessarily bad. We can put a kind of a positive spin on it. These are often families and children who are struggling and they feel like something is wrong. And if we're better at diagnosing it, then we're better at getting them help and intervention a little bit earlier. And that can be a good thing.
0: I agree, and I can't help but wonder about some of the people I grew up with. Were they just undiagnosed and labeled as strange or different and led more of a solitary life as a result? I think that's true for a lot of
1: people who have had um, typical language development and typical cognitive development. So they, they seem to be functioning okay by some measures and have seemed to get along in society. Many people with autism have families, have, um, well paying jobs. And the thing that I, I'm concerned about as a clinician and researcher is that there's, there's kind of a lot of pain and suffering that goes with being socially isolated. Uh, because your brain is working differently and other people may not understand you and they misunderstand you, I think is the biggest problem. They, they're they not, you know, they may think that you're rude um, where the truth is you just missed um, a nonverbal cue that your brain is not wired to notice without um, a lot of support and intervention. And I, it, it hurts me to think of people being misunderstood and rejected socially Um, when I don't think that's necessary. I think if we understood better what autism is, we would be able to be a little bit more accepting and supportive.
0: I agree. So what are the early signs of autism that parents need to be aware of?
1: A lot of research is, is trying to find signs as early as two months. And there are some, you know, signs that are noticeable by medical equipment, such as an eye tracker, that notice differences in the way that infants are looking at people's faces and where they're looking on people's faces. Some of these signs aren't really detectable to you or me, but what we can look for is changes in social, not changes, but things that are kind of missing in social communication. So the the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, has a really great website called Learn the Signs, Act Early. And there are developmental milestone checklists starting at two months, four months, six months, etc., going all the way up to six years. And these checklists say here are the different domains of development, whether it be language, social, motor skills. Here are the things that your child should be doing at about this age. And every child has kind of slightly different timetable. But they also have a list of you should be concerned if this is not happening by this age. So really looking at this is the outer bounds of when this skill should be developing. And if it hasn't developed by now, then that's a cause for concern. And I really like those lists because they can tell you, for example, if you don't see big smiles by around four to six months, then that's something to indicate that social communication may not be occurring the way it should be. And we can start looking at that very, very early development. One of the really common milestones that we talk about um, for language and autism is that a child should have two word phrases by age two. And that's easy to remember, but just kind of monitoring those developmental checklists as your as your baby age can let you know um, that there might be a pattern in what's not developing typically and that you need to go talk to your pediatrician about it. There are some, some of the things we think about autism. So I've talked about things that are missing that aren't developing, like pointing, for example, by age one, all children should be pointing to show you something. Um, and that's something that if you don't know that that's supposed to be there, you'll not notice it because it's a skill that's missing. We tend to focus on things that we see like odd behaviors and, and, unfortunately these are behaviors that every infant and toddler does at some point so it might be lining stuff up it might be repetitive play Um, it might be a tantrum because things didn't go exactly the way you wanted them to go Um, so you recognize that these are things that all infants and toddlers do if these behaviors continue beyond the point where we think they should have outgrown it a little bit that's when we become concerned as well but the hard part is the things that are missing those are harder to pick up so those developmental checklists I think are an excellent way to to monitor your baby's development
0: it sounds like it's not just one thing but you're looking at maybe several things
1: yeah, so language development is is one area we always look at with autism, and that's kind of wrapped up in social communication. So social communication does include language, but it also includes eye contact and using gestures if you don't have words and reading facial expressions or using facial expressions. And we what we look for when we're looking at very young children who don't have a lot of expressive language yet is like, How are they telling us what they want? And so the the ideal communication is a child who looks at you and makes a gesture like pointing and makes some kind of language approximation to tell you like, I want something or I need something. And when we have those three things together, that's really good social communication. If we see some of those parts missing, that's when we start to wonder if um, brain development is on track.
0: I, I, you see the billboards that say that avoiding eye contact is a sign of autism, but would you say you would need to see more than just avoiding eye contact? Okay.
1: So eye contact is an important indicator, but it's not the only indicator. So sometimes people we will have people say, well, he can't have autism because he does make eye contact with me. Um, and that's not strictly true. Some children and adults with, eye, with autism have learned to make eye contact because uh, someone has taught them how to do it and so they do make eye contact well. It's just not very comfortable f- for them or they may not think of it as their first line of social communication. And to most people, it's a very natural um, way to communicate socially with somebody. But for a person with autism, they have to work a little bit harder at that. So it's not that eye contact's completely absent in all cases with autism. It's not as fluent, and it's maybe not as frequent as we would expect.
0: Okay, so our parent has gone to the CDC website. They've gone through the checklist. They're pretty sure their child is showing signs. What are their next steps?
1: Well, if you go back to that CDC website, there is a part that says what to do if you're concerned. So the first step is usually to contact your pediatrician. Um, this is usually an easy, easily accessed professional who um, has the resources to, to send you on or refer you on. Um, some physicians are a little hesitant at first because they're not seeing their, your child as often as you are. So they may see the, the child in their office for like 10 minutes and let's see the child, let's say the child makes eye contact. So they may be hesitant to, to say, let's go ahead with autism referrals. Um, but you as a parent, if, you, if you're if you still concerned about it, um, you can actually contact some of the places the physician would refer you to by yourself. So the first place I would go to would be early intervention if the child is under three. Each state has an early intervention agency Um that administers local early intervention agencies, so in that that's everywhere in the United states there's an early intervention agency um, and then the next, if your child's older than three, then you go to your school district, and these are also easily accessed. Um, services that usually don't cost you very much, or they may be no cost, and they can start evaluating your child. They may or may not have specific autism expertise, but they can start looking at language, and they can start looking at cognitive abilities, and they can look at motor abilities. So they are very good at looking at overall development, and if you are very concerned about autism, um, Your physician can refer you to an autism specialty clinic or you can refer yourself. You can just call the autism specialty clinics yourself, usually, and get an appointment. Now, there's a shortage of people with autism specialty skills, and so there might be a long wait list, but you get on that wait list, and while you're waiting, you're still working with the school or you're working with earlier intervention on language and social and motor skills.
0: And it sounds like that early intervention is critical.
2: Yeah, and I think you can even do the early intervention, even if you're not 100% sure it is autism. You just work with the symptoms um, that the child is showing, and that can be helpful even if it turns out it's not autism.
1: So part of the reason for the early intervention program um, is it, and it's established by federal law for children zero to three years old, is that that is the time when the brain is really growing and developing and the time when language um, is being developed in the brain. And so Dr. Lundwell 's is correct, even if we don't know for sure about some, – some children with autism, we know for sure at like 12 months, 18 months – Generally, we know at about age two if a child has autism, but there are a lot of children where uh, even very highly skilled professionals aren't quite sure. And so the best um, course of action is to continue with intervention for language, for example, and, and social increase social opportunities look for ways to develop motor skills and cognitive skills. And as we get a better idea of the term I always use is what's driving the bus. Is it autism that is the reason for the delays that we're seeing or not? And sometimes I've seen kids that have these delays in language and motor, but their social skills are so great that we know autism is not driving the bus. They do have multiple delays in multiple systems, and we're addressing those but we've ruled out autism as the cause. And so we look for other causes for the delays, if that makes sense.
0: It does, it does. And now you told me about an episode on Supernanny where she is working with a three-year-old nonverbal child with autism. And I looked it up and it was fascinating. Tell us a little bit more about that.
1: Okay, so the therapist in the video is Dr. Lynn Cagle, who's recently moved to Stanford from UC Santa Barbara. So she's a speech language pathologist by training. She's also got a PhD in educational psychology but she and her husband developed a method of autism treatment that, whose main goal is to produce language. So it's not teaching children how to speak. It's getting them to use language more naturally and socially. And so what you see in that episode is a child who has not, he has the ability to say sounds and say words. He's just not choosing to use that because he has a much more efficient way of getting what he wants. And that's kind of screaming, which you see in the video. And we find things that he really likes. So Dr. Cagle discovered he really loves to swing and he really loves tickles. And so their therapy is called pivotal res- response treatment. And the, the pivotal part is like we found something that the child is highly motivated about. So it might is, in this case, swinging and tickles. And we're going to use that. To get him engaged in kind of a routine where we're going to hope that he becomes motivated enough to get the reward of swinging and tickles that he's going to try to say that as a way to get it. So you see her swinging him and saying swing and then kind of stopping the swing to see if he'll jump in with his request which is swing and he does. And sometimes the request he's used to giving is a scream and we're not going to give him the swing when he's screaming. We're going to wait till he makes any approximation of the sound. It doesn't have to be perfect, but when he tries to say, and I think you saw in the video, he tried, she was tickling and she'd say tickle and she was just poised to tickle him. He knew it was coming and all he had to do was give her the go ahead. And so he tried to say Tickle. So he's imitating what she said um, to get what he wants, and I think in the video they mentioned that that was his is his first word. And so she's this response technique is completely based in ABA therapy, applied behavior analysis, where we have an an antecedent, which is her asking him if he wants a tickle, and the behavior is tickling when or the behavior she's trying to get is him to say tickle, and then she rewards him with what he wanted, which is the tickle. So it's, it's an ABA therapy. They've changed it just a little bit to focus on the setup, you know, how you find what the child is highly motivated by, and using that as your nat- very natural consequence for a very natural behavior of asking verbally for the thing that you want.
0: And I saw it. it's very effective, now i've heard some parents fear, express that they feel ABA is rather controversial that it's too punitive, and I'm wondering do they can you explain more what it is and what it isn't sure,
1: so ABA is really a branch of science okay it's it's a very wide ranging um, scientific uh, approach to behavioral change. And if you think about it, most of the way we try to change behavior of children and even other individuals around us is rooted in ABA behavior. Um, the, the goal of ABA therapy is to use the science to help individuals become more independent. So we use it to help teach new skills. We help to use it to switch from what we'll call a maladaptive or disruptive behavior to a more functional behavior. And it can look really different depending on what context you're in and what kind of goals you're working for. The best example I will usually give to parents is that we all use ABA um, in in toilet training, our children. So we've got a situation where We're assessing readiness for the new skill. We're looking at preferences for what the child would be willing to work for. We're teaching all of the small steps of the skill. We're modeling the skill. We're assisting while they're learning. So we're like scaffolding the skill development. We're looking for signs and antecedents that the behavior is is coming or is imminent. And then we reward it when we see it with successful, we reward successful potty trips. So as with any new skill that you're trying to teach, ABA is most effective when we focus on successes until the child reaches mastery, such as toilet training. And then when that skill is firmly established, we move on to another skill. So part of the, the – I think the reason ABA gets a bad reputation um, in children with autism is that some of the ways we teach children initially to learn is that we have to teach them to pay attention to the person who's trying to teach them something, and we have to give them a reason for learning a skill that they really don't understand why they might need. Um, So, some of the, one of the ABA techniques is called discrete trial teaching, and it's not all of ABA by any means, but it's one technique where we're actually teaching a child to look at me and keep your feet down and your hands down so that you can concentrate on what we're doing, which is, it's called an attending skill. It's what a child needs in order to learn anything new. And when we first try to teach children that, they're not super happy about it, but it's a skill they must learn in order to access any kind of academic curriculum and in order to pay attention to what other people are doing and actually learn social skills. So um, there's something called an extinction burst and and you you kind of saw that um, in the Super Nanny video when they were trying to see if he wanted a cookie or a swing and when he screamed to get it and they didn't give it to him when he screamed, that made him pretty angry and, and he screamed more. That's called an extinction burst. And when parents see that, it's really difficult. And in the in the um, Super Nanny video, you can see the mom is really hurting when her child is, is screaming and unhappy. And Dr. Cagle says, look at me, look at me, to try to kind of uh, bolster the mother's ability to withstand that initial extinction burst Till the child could get to the point where he realizes it's just easier to say the word than to do a tantrum because no one's giving it to him after a tantrum anymore.
0: I think that was also a key example of how parents need to be involved. I think sometimes parents feel like, okay, I've just handed my child over to the professionals. Now I'll let them take care of it. But as that episode demonstrates Parents are part of the team. Um, They really are. And one thing that, here's the tricky thing for parents.
1: Therapists are always therapists. And so they know their role. Um, Parents are actually, you're the only set of parents this child has. So your role is to be the child's parent and do all of the parenting that you would do with all of your children. But then you kind of have this additional role and you're right, they're on a therapy team. And so it's not just the logistics of finding therapy, accessing therapy, getting coverage or payment for therapy. And then, but you're also working with the therapist. So the therapist needs information from the parents. So communication is key. That's one of the parent's, Uh, key roles on the team is telling the therapist what's happening at home, what the child really needs to accomplish in order for life to go better for the child. And then parents, parenting a child with autism is kind of a level above parenting all children um, because you need some additional skills such, that I mean, skills that your therapist can actually help you develop. So whether it's helping to change a child's behavior that your behavior therapist can help you with or managing diet that the nutritionist and the pediatrician can help you with or helping with motor skills and coordination that your physical therapist can help you with or helping to overcome some of the sensory um, sensitivities or sensory seeking behaviors that your occupational Therapists can help you, but they're working on all of these things in therapy, but they can also help you with skills to help life at home just go better for all of you.
2: And I want to just go back to something that um, Dr. Gabrielson said earlier about brain development and the importance of early intervention. Part of the reason it's so important to do these things early is that it just puts your child on a different trajectory, um, a trajectory where they are making brain connections so that they can progress more closely on a typical development path. And we really just don't want to wait to do that if we suspect that there is autism.
0: Well. Thank you, Dr. Lindwall and Dr. Gabrelson for some excellent information for parents of younger children. All of the websites that Dr. Gabrelson mentioned are on my website, insupportivefamilies.com. You can go there and we will talk to them again later about Autism with older children and teenagers, some interesting facts about girls with autism. So thank you, Dr. Lundwall, Dr. Gabrielson, and we'll talk to you again next time. You're welcome. In Supportive Families, this is Emmalou Penrod, and I'm really excited about the guest I have today. This is Dr. Beth Halbert, a